So, Mallory, how do you feel about the word gerontocracy? Oh, man, how do I feel about the word gerontocracy? It's it's a loaded question, and it's a third rail. Mallory McMorrow, you can call her Senator McMorrow, is the majority whip in the Michigan State Senate. She's a Democrat. The reality is that our Congress and our federal officials, on average, are significantly older than most of the population. I called Senator McMorrow up because, as far as I can tell, she is one of the few politicians who wants to talk publicly about that scary tape that came out last week of Mitch McConnell. The one where he gets a question about his re-election and then just seems to freeze. This is the second time this summer that McConnell has had an incident like this. The Capitol doctor says McConnell's fine. McConnell's office has said he was simply lightheaded. But not everyone is satisfied with these answers. Sanjay, you're a neurosurgeon. I don't want to be rude about it, but that's not somebody who just feels lightheaded. The subtext of all this back and forth is a question. Are America's leaders too old? After all, Mitch McConnell turned 81 this year. I think what really struck me, and, and uh, I think Manu alluded to this, is that you know, his aides don't seem that surprised by this. In the middle of this debate, Senator McMorrow launched a miniature tweet storm. Being serious, she began, watching some of our federal officials deteriorate in front of our eyes is deeply sad. Pretty much right away, her words became a political weapon. So the Republican uh, Senate minority leader screenshot my tweet and, you know, said that I was calling for President Biden to step down and not run because Gretchen Whitmer, who's our, our governor here, uh, wanted to be next in line. It was absolutely not what I said at all. Oh, wow. Really, <laughs> really taking the football and running. <laughs> the fact is, on both sides of the aisle right now, the leadership of both parties are, you know, largely in their 80s. It really, to me, sends the wrong message that we keep pushing for work-life balance and, you know, earning your retirement, but at the same time, there's this very American ideal of defying expectations and working quite literally in, until you die. In Michigan, there are rules about who can serve and for how long. There's an age cap on the state Supreme Court, strict term limits in the state legislature. That has its own problems, Senator McMorrow says. But these rules are popular. Do you ever worry about getting a little bit addicted to the political game? It's something that I think about a lot because I have to wonder, for some of our federal officials, especially if you've been doing this for most of your life, if you even know who you are without your job. And I don't ever want to be in that place. I even struggle now just with the demands of the job on the day-to-day -day basis, and then there's fundraisers, and then there's evening events, and it can be really easy to build your entire schedule around this work. You know, we called a lot of politicians to try to get them to talk about their aging colleagues and, and what they made of all this. Not many wanted to call back. Why did you want to talk? Because it's a conversation we have to have. At the end of the day, you know, I don't think very highly of a lot of the things that Mitch McConnell has done professionally, but this is still a person. And it's really scary if we lose that. Today on the show, 
the conversation we need to have about our very American gerontocracy. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. The word gerontocracy, defined as a society governed by old people, has been bouncing around for a while now. In fact, a year back, Business Insider did a whole series of stories about how the U.S. got to where it is today. It was called Red, White, and Gray. My producers thought back on this reporting when Mitch McConnell started freezing up this summer. So we got Walt Hickey on the line. He was the data reporter who dug into years of records to understand if what we're seeing right now is really an aberration or just feels like one. We asked him to lay it all out for us. There have always been older members. Let's be clear about that. There, there have always been people who represented their districts and their states in Congress uh, at, at an advanced age. I think that what we've seen lately is that there's a concentration of them that is unprecedented. In 2022, the year that we were analyzing, 23% of Congress was over the age of 70. That, to be clear, is up from around like 14% in about 2015 and all the way up from about like 5% as recently as 1985. Oh, wow. That is a spike. It is a spike that is that is ahistorical. Is that partially just because people didn't live that long? No, it, it's considerably faster than that. Because if you looked at how the rate at which this fact changed, it really only started to pick up a little bit in the 90s, but particularly in the 2000s. But the thing is, is that this looks like a hockey stick. And, and human life expectancy is not a hockey stick. It's a slow, gradual uh, advancement since the 1920s. But this is a, a very significantly different thing. The other element of it is that, you know, the, the, the median age of somebody in Congress is uh, 61.5 as of the time of the study that we did, which is, again, up from, you know, in your 50s in what it had been for much of the 70s, 80s and 90s. We're talking a lot about Congress, but is this gerontocracy idea, does it apply across the board to different places in politics? Like, I mean, obviously we're looking at a presidential election where we may be seeing a rematch between someone who's 77 and someone who's 80. That's Joe Biden and Donald Trump. But are are we seeing this in other places in the U.S. government? Yeah, definitely. In my trade, uh, that's that's called a small sample size. So the presidential stuff is, is kind of tough to focus on when uh, when you're talking about that. But nevertheless, that is obviously one of the key reasons that we were interested in this topic. Uh, the fact that Trump and Biden appear to be poised for a rematch when there's there used to be a bench of talent on each side. To your point, though, we've seen this exact effect take place in the federal judiciary as well. We also pulled the uh, you know the age of each member of the federal judiciary over time, and you know when you're including senior staff. Status or when you're not including senior status, nevertheless, senior status is like kind of quasi-retired. Quasi-retired. You're still making decisions, to be clear, but you you have a less full plate, I guess is the way to put it. And so even when you set aside those folks, uh, you're still looking at an extremely old historically uh, judiciary. Hmm. I do feel like we should say, and you've alluded to this, that the American system has been a little bit of a gerontocracy for a while now, right? Can you explain? I mean, the thing about the United States Senate in particular, and the House in part, is that these are institutions that structurally reward seniority. Folks who remain longer will inherently accrue more power. You will always be more powerful tomorrow than you were yesterday, 
based on the general rules of how seniority works in Congress, you're more likely to get committee slots. You're more likely to lead those committees. Uh, you are more likely to just be higher in the pecking order. And as a result, the system's going to inherently reward some degree of longevity. And you can make a pretty good argument that longevity within Congress is actually a pretty good way to judge quality of a lawmaker if, if the idea is that this person is capable of going back to their voters every single cycle and getting that stamp back to come home. I sense a butt coming here. A pretty remarkable butt, if I may. The idea is that longevity is not meritocracy. Longevity is not necessarily the only, if not best way to orchestrate uh, who should be leading an apparatus of, of, of Congress, right? And uh, as a result, this has also become tied up with a lot of other things. The idea is the more powerful that you are in Congress, the more friends that you have, the better your ability to fundraise, the more ability that you have to uh, scare away primary challengers, which is going to be a primary way that older members are dislodged by younger contenders. Uh, it, you basically rack up such a significant amount of power that, you know, if you look at what's happened since, you know, the 1990s and 2000s, opens up an ocean of money to you that can stymie any potential threat. Okay, let's just break down why this could be happening piece by piece. You've you've kind of gotten into it a little bit there, but I have I've heard some people blame the two-party system for gerontocracy in the US. Why would they say that? It's a really good way to guarantee that in a general election the person who is most preferred by the district, generally speaking politically, is going to win, regardless of age. And so imagine your ruby red district, imagine your deep blue district, and imagine, as you can probably think of a few examples if you live near one of these, a person who's represented one of these suckers for 30 years. And you can realistically get the idea that that person's never going to be dislodged in a, you know, a competitive head-to-head uh, -head Republican versus Democratic election. That person's going to face their competition in a primary. And there's a couple things about primaries and the parties that ostensibly participate in them that you have to understand that, for instance, like, you know, the DNC is never going to run somebody against a sitting member, typically, unless there's an extreme circumstance. The party's a gatekeeper. The party's totally a gatekeeper. And also, in, in no small part, that's because who raised the money for the party in the first place? The member. And so as a result, you're, you know, you're never going to see institutional support backing a challenger from a younger competitor for one of these older members. And I guess if you only have two parties, you only have two pipelines to get people in. So then those pipelines can get clogged up. And they very much do. I mean, a good example is, you know, we, we had a story that we looked at when we were doing this project all about redistricting and, you know, what happens when two people from the same party are smushed together in the same district. And we found that, you know, it's, it's decently even, but more often than not, the older member is the one who wins. And why is that? Well, perhaps they have better resources. They have more friends. They have, they were, there's a likelihood that perhaps they have better friends in the capital. So when they were drawing the district, 80% of their district and 20% of the other guy's district got smushed together. You yourself have said something else that has influenced this sort of spike in older members is funding and how candidates are funded. Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, like... If you ask me in like one word what this is, what is explaining this hockey stick that started in the late 1980s and established today, you have to look at what the main thing that changed about American politics between then and now is, and it's the money. And the money is more effective at establishing like a seat 
and a likelihood of victory than it ever was before. If you have a war chest, not only do you have the ability to beat down a potential insurgent opposition, but that also scares people away from doing it. If you looked at the past couple of years, you know, we've had a few young people make it to the halls of Congress. The one that invariably comes up is AOC. And she took on someone who is a real leader in the Democratic Party, Joe Crowley. But Joe kind of like slept at the wheel for a little bit. Like he didn't really spend the money against her. Like, the, the reason that she was able to win in no small part was because he didn't realize how big of a threat she was. And as a result, wasn't able to deploy the ocean of cash that he had in time. You know, the the times where a younger adversary has dislodged a more established incumbent are, are rather few and far between just because it's such an asymmetrical challenge. Uh, I mean, you can think even back to uh, the, the Senate election in Massachusetts a few years ago when the, the only person who was able to even kind of compete with the likes of Ed Markey was was some Kennedy. <laughs> like <laughs> it, it becomes very hard for an outsider candidate who's trying to get in there. Has what AOC did in Queens become a model for other younger politicians who want to challenge the establishment? I think that it became a cautionary tale for older politicians who don't want that to happen to them. People are getting a lot more cognizant of the possibility of a challenger like that. If you saw the cycle after AOC won in 2020, people were very were, were explicitly told, be aware of this kind of thing that could be happening in your district. And, and you saw a lot of Justice Democrats at that time uh, try and fail to uh, defeat some of these older incumbents. And, and so you, you can see it in a number of different races in recent cycles as well. As a result, though, you've seen several of these groups that are trying to get more young people, more people potentially to the left of the Democratic Party, more people to the right of the general Republican Party. You've seen them do what everyone else does, which is fundraise, 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 and, and just try to get enough money to compete. But I don't know. I think that you're going to see diminishing returns on that front. After the break, who wins and who loses in a gerontocracy? Okay, I think a lot of people assume there's a problem with having a lot of older leaders because it just looks anti-democratic. Like I've <laughs> I've started getting these ads on Instagram for like t-shirts that are, you know, anyone under age 70, 2024 kind of thing. Like I just feel like it's almost become a meme. <laughs> yeah. But I want to really pick apart why it's a problem, like other than just feeling icky. <laughs> I guess. Are there particular issues that seem to be getting short shrift simply because our politicians are older than the population at large. This is a really important element of this because, you know, we, we did a lot of reporting on specific issue based things. You can th see things like climate change. You can see things like the student debt. Uh, realistically, Congress does not have uh, anywhere near the percentage of student debtors that the country as a whole has. And you can make a pretty argument that that's just a, a misalignment uh, in, in priorities and a misalignment in uh, understanding of the financial health of the country from some of the folks on the Hill. And that's partially because of an age thing, but that's also partially because the inherent, inherently the member, a member of Congress is going to be wealthier than your typical American. Yeah, it's a class thing. No small part. Uh, it's, you know, you can see some evolution from candidates over time. Again, like, you know, we talk about climate being a thing that older representation is not necessarily as effective at. We saw particularly that with Dianne Feinstein in a confrontation with some climate activists a few years ago. Yeah, this is this video that went viral a few years back where these young climate activists confront 
the senator. And she just really rebuffs them. The government is supposed to be for the people and by the people and all You know what's interesting about this group is I've been doing this for 30 years. I know what I'm doing. You come in here and you say it has to be my way or the highway. I don't respond to that. For climate activists, I think that was extremely demoralizing that one of the senators from a state that otherwise has so much energy behind climate solutions really just kind of dismissed it. But, and here's a, here's a but in favor of, of, of the old folks, like, hey, who delivered the, the, the biggest climate bill in the history of the country? Joseph Biden. And as a result, you can kind of make an argument that, like, listen, like, age isn't strictly, you know, defining one's views of stuff. But that being said... I think that this gets at like a, a like a secondary question behind this that I can actually put some hard numbers on is it's just like it is an underrepresentation issue. Congress does not adequately represent half the country because half the country, the median age in America is like 39 and a half, give or take. But only 4% of Congress is under the age of 40. And that is a misalignment. That that is a that is a. Uh, that is not adequately representing the interests of of half the country, half the voters, to be clear. Yeah, I'm glad we're talking about this because one of the things that's not an issue, but (laughs) it is a problem with the fact that so many leaders happen to be older is just the pipeline for new people to be trained and be able to take over roles within government. So when you did this reporting, were there people really saying like, hey, this is a little bit of a problem? Like there's no one who's just trained to take over in XYZ leadership position. Yeah, it's uh, again, you have to think that some of these people have been running these parties for decades at this point, And that wasn't always the case. And as a result, people are learning on their feet. Uh, what we'd seen a lot of was that, you know, th- there wasn't a lot of of ways up for members. And so you can kind of understand from there why for a lot of young members, it really seems like lots of them are trying out for a spot on Fox News or a show on MSNBC, because those are a lot more direct routes and conduits to power, potentially, than, uh, than you know, do, doing your time and, and eventually becoming the per- head guy on House Armed Services that will allow you to significantly influence Pentagon policy, right? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> It's a pretty brutal way to put it. Like, there's just no opportunity for job advancement here in Congress. Yeah, there's some of that. I, and I think that people have brought up term limits. Um, polling for term limits is pretty damn good. I don't love term limits personally, and I don't love age limits on, on a personal level. I don't think that those are particularly democratic institutions. Um, that being said, I think that a little bit more internal discipline from some of the the parties on you know perhaps after a certain number of years you have to give up a gavel perhaps after a certain number of years you have to move committees perhaps you know incentivizing basically younger blood to accrue power in a more orderly fashion uh rather than hoarding it among people based on how long they've just you know been there i I think is probably uh, a thing that this country would benefit a great deal from that wouldn't necessarily involve a, a constitutional question over what kind of limits one can put on a representative. You know, something funny about this conversation is that I think you and probably me, we keep referring to gerontocracy as like a problem, <laughs> like the problem. I wonder, it's been a little while since you did your original reporting. What was their response to it? Like, do you get the sense that people in Washington see gerontocracy as a problem? 
I think that the elected members do not. Uh, you will never get a, a member going on record to say something negative about the age of another member. That is just not how that place works. When it comes to the staffers, when it comes to folks down ballot, when it comes to folks who you know are, are potentially at the state level, who want to make a jump for the federal level, it's an issue. And, and it's an issue that is worse than it was in the past. Again, we, we're not trying to say that you know older folks shouldn't serve in Congress. In fact, far from it. I think that some of our best legislators have been folks who have been able to operate from a significant depth of experience. It's the systemic problem where it's 23% of this organization is representing people over the age of 70 and 4% is representing people under the age of 40. That is an asymmetry. That is a that is a representation problem. Hmm. So what should Mitch McConnell do now? I mean, it's up to Mitch McConnell. I think that He's got, he has a lot of choices that he can make. That being said, the longer that he doesn't make choices around that, the sooner that you'll start seeing the people around him start making choices for him on that front. Hmm. Uh, There's already been rumblings about other people in Republican leadership potentially testing the waters on, you know, you can serve in Congress, potentially leadership just isn't necessarily for you at this point. I don't know. I I think it just kind of, It depends on how he wants to be perceived in the last lap, so to speak. And uh, again, potentially he's, you know, this is just a temporary setback and he's doing quite fine. And and he sees it that way and his doctor sees it that way and his family sees it that way. And he'll come back from this and and this will just be a a minor health blip and and we'll all be wrong. And, and, you know, we, we can, he can continue to hold on to power from there. But like at a certain point, things do get inevitable. And, you know, it comes at a different time for all of us. And I think that we all need to be a little bit more cognizant of when that inevitability strikes. Walt Hickey, I'm really grateful for your reporting and your time. Thanks for coming on the show. This is a real treat. I'm a big fan. Thank you so much. Walt Hickey is Insider's deputy editor for data and analysis. Mallory McMorrow, who you heard from at the top of the show, is a Michigan state senator. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. It's our membership program. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll be back in your feed tomorrow.